Okay, let me draw your attention to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. This is what we're going to be looking at. Let me tell you a couple of old stale church jokes. Probably they're so old that maybe it's time for them to start being recirculated. But uh, there was a man that uh, was on a cruise ship and he fell overboard. And everybody just assumed that he drowned. But somehow or another, he was able to swim and float on his back until he finally arrived at an island that was completely deserted. There was no humanity there, but he was able to find things to eat, and he was pretty handy with his hands, and he made himself a hut to live in, and he did pretty well, and people had just pretty much forgotten about him. But after he had been there on that deserted island for 10 years, a passing ship saw him doing something on the shore, and they thought, what is that man doing there? We thought this was abandoned. And they found out that this was the fellow that had fallen overboard 10 years earlier. Oh, my goodness. They were so excited about it. A news crew showed up, and all kind of people were there, and they were asking, how did he survive? He said, well, there was plenty to eat here. A lot of vegetation. There was bananas, all kinds of fruit. And he said, never now and then I could catch a bird and have a little roast bird for supper or something like that. And he said, everything was fine. And and they said, where'd you live? He said, well, you see that hut right over there? He said, I built that, and that's my home. I lived there for 10 years. And they said, well, uh, what's that right there? He said, well, that's, I built that. That's where I go to church. And they said, well, what's the other building? He said, well, that's where I used to go to church. <laughs> <laughs> he had to be a Baptist, don't you think? <laughs> well, there was another one. One Sunday morning, the church was so happy a family had come to join. They'd moved into town and uh, had been there for only about one month, and they had settled on joining First Baptist Big Bucks Church. And so uh, at, the, at the end of the service, the pastor extended an invitation to any that would want to join, and this family came forward. And they came forward on a, on a letter, a basis of a letter of recommendation from the church that they had moved from many, many miles away. And so the pastor presented them, and he said, all in favor of accepting this family on promise of a letter, would you signify by saying, I? And there was a loud I from the whole congregation. And then the pastor said, anybody that would be opposed, would you signify that by saying no? Well, nobody opposed that. And so the pastor looked at everyone and beamed happily, and he said, well, that sounds like a unanimous vote to me. And then... That man turned to the pastor. He said, yep, and that's going to be the last unanimous vote as long as I'm a member here. <laughs> oh, I think I know that man. I really do. Well, we're going to be talking about unity, and it may not be one of those uh, themes that we go over a lot, but it's a theme that we should always keep our focus upon. And here, the Apostle Paul is beginning to conclude this letter he wrote to the church in Philippi. Now, we're going to pick up on verse 1 a little bit later, but right now I just want us to focus on verses 2 and 3 of chapter 4. As we said, we can see that Paul is beginning to wind down in this letter. He says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Well, evidently there was this issue that was going on there at, at Philippi. The letter to the Philippians is, is a 
sweet letter, really. I mean, you don't see Paul, you know, railing against them like in, and really speaking in harsh terms like he did to the church in Corinth or, or to the churches of Galatia. You don't see that. It's just a very kind letter. And a lot of times we, we miss out on what the main reason for him writing this letter was and what, what the theme is. But there is this underlying theme of unity that you see from beginning to end in this letter to the Philippians. First of all, I want us to notice something here about the fragile nature of unity. From the very beginning of this letter to the Philippians, the Apostle Paul begins hinting at the idea of unity being a major concern there at that church. Matter of fact, if you look here in, in chapter 1, verse 4, notice where he says, he said, uh, I thank, well, verse 3 says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy. Now Paul wasn't trying to sound like someone from the deep south and saying you all, or he wouldn't be talking like a Texan and just saying y'all. There, there was something important about this because he, he says you all again in here. You see in verse 7 he said it's right for me to feel this way about you all. Verse 7 again he says you are all partakers with me of grace. Verse 8 of chapter 1, I yearn for you all. And then he begins to switch gears and talking about having a oneness of mind or a single purpose in mind. He said, with one mind striving for the gospel. In chapter 2, verse 2, he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Chapter 2, verse 17, he says, I am glad and rejoice with you all. This was a thing in which he was... He was focusing upon this idea of unity simply because that was something that this church needed to focus upon. You can say, well, Paul says you all in other letters. Yes, but not as often and not in such a small space as he does right here. This is, this is something that really should stand out to us whenever we study Philippians is Paul begins emphasizing the need for unity from the very beginning. And whenever we get to chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, he quits being just a little vague and he just gets right down to the point and he mentions this. There is an issue of unity that needs to be dealt with and two, and what it was this, obviously two women in the church named Euodia and Syntyche were upset with each other and they had their stingers out about something. We don't know exactly what it was about. But there was a problem, and that problem needed to be remedied. And it's really kind of a surprising thing that this issue would come up. Not just the idea of unity, but something that was going on between these two ladies. You remember how the church at Philippi got started. The Apostle Paul heard the Macedonian call, so to speak. We, we, we talk about that. And there he was in, in, in the Asian area. He comes across to Macedonia. He goes over there. He goes to Philippi. And what he does is after they kind of arrive at Philippi, Paul and Silas, what did they do? They went to the river one morning, and they found, on the Sabbath day morning, they went to the river, and they found a group of ladies praying together. One of those ladies was Lydia. That's the only name that we're given there in the book of Acts. It's very likely that Euodia and Syntyche were a part of this ladies' prayer group that met on Sabbath day mornings. It's not unlikely at all about it. So here we're talking about a church that was having a problem. It was a problem that started off between two ladies. 
And it's odd because this was the church that started with a ladies' prayer group. And all of a sudden, you have a problem with unity there. And, and another thing is this. The church at Philippi was not a bad church. It was not a church that Paul was disappointed with. As a matter of fact, there was this special joyful bond that existed between the apostle and the church that was there. Go back to chapter 4 again. Now, we said we'd mentioned something about chapter 4, verse 1. He said, notice how he refers to the people at Philippi. He says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. This was the church that he considered, that he, that he loved. This is the church that he longed to be around. This was, this was the church that he called him, they were his crown. He loved them, and they loved him. There is really no other letter that the Apostle Paul wrote that such affection shows through on the part of Paul for the church that he's writing to. There was a special bond that existed between him and the church at Philippi that we do not see in any other church that he addressed a letter to that we have. The closest that you have is in the letters to the Thessalonians. Now, if you read 1 Corinthians, he kind of gets in their face, and he really does whenever he wrote Galatians. Uh, he did not mince any words correcting them about something. But whenever he's talking to people at Philippi, it's just kind of a different story altogether. Several years ago, I was at a, a, a Bible study in which a friend of mine brought this whole thing up about the love that Paul had for them and the bond that he had with the church. And he said, he said, there, he said there's really only one other church that this shows through with, and he said it's the church at Thessalonica. And he said, if you want to know the reason for that, he said, maybe we can discuss it over a cup of coffee. So I, I took him up on that. And I said, what's the reason? He said, the thing is this. He said, Paul faced persecution and was dealt with harshly by the public, at, not only at Philippi, but also at Thessalonica. The Christians at Philippi and the Christians at Thessalonica felt the sting of that persecution. They were able to sympathize with Paul in a way that no other, no other of those churches could. And so there was this special thing that went on. Another thing was this, was that in chapter 4, verse 15, there's another reason that he wrote this letter. The people at Philippi sent him a monetary gift to help him with this ministry and to help him with what was going on. The Apostle Paul was never a money grubber. If, if a church did not support him, that was okay. He could go back to his trade of, of making tents. He was able to support himself that way. But if a church helped him out financially, that meant that he, had to, he could give less attention to making tents and more attention to spreading the gospel. The church at Philippi had not been able to give him anything for quite a while simply because they didn't have the funds to do it. But just before he wrote this letter to them, they had sent him a monetary gift, and part of the reason he wrote him the letter was just to say thank you for the gift. Now, and he also says this, they helped him in a way that none of the other churches around had been helping him. In chapter 4, verse 15, he said this, he said, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. This church stood out. This church was unique. Was the church at Philippi a bad church? Was it a church that was made up of bad people? Absolutely not. They just got off track. 
That's all it was. He loved these people. They loved him. They supported him. And they did it in a way that no other church did. But still, he has to address this issue of unity because even in a good church, that unity is always going to be fragile. And these two women that were at odds with each other, Euodia and Syntyche, and we don't know what their problem was. I've always just kind of guessed that Euodia was in charge of the mission offering for the year, and Syntyche was probably in charge of the annual spaghetti supper. And somehow or another, these gals got their stingers out over something. You know, I can just see them. Probably one of them had this was a little skinny thing with this drawn face, and the other one was built about like a championship wrestler, and they just weren't getting along together at all. But listen to what he has to say about these gals. These were not evil women. Notice he refers to them as fellow workers. These are women that had labored hard and worked hard shoulder to shoulder with Paul in spreading the gospel around Philippi. They were, they, these, were, these were ladies that it was no doubt that they were true Christians. They weren't hypocrites. As a matter of fact, he refers to them and his other fellow laborers there at Philippi as those whose names are in the book of life. It's just to show you that you can be a Christian, you can be a prayerful person, but then at the same time, <laughs> you can get off track and, and end up having a problem. So let me ask you this. How could a church, more especially, how could two such Christians threaten to, threaten the, to bring disunity to this church? Well, I read this in a, a book of sermons that was written over 100 years ago, and so the language may be a little stilted, but I think you can get what he's saying. This is a British preacher. He said, we can be perfectly sure that Euodia and Syntyche had relaxed their ties with the Lord. There is nothing for which the enemy of souls works and watches so intently as for the slackening of our spiritual attachments. For when the heavenly is neglected, the earthly becomes unclean. Now to put it this way, once we begin to focus on some pet project of ours, or once we begin to, to focus program that we think is all ours and then we look away from our purpose of glorifying God we go off into risky territory and we begin to pray to God oh God not thy will but mine be done and whenever that happens then unity begins to go out the window listen it does not take much to destroy or to cripple the unity in a church a conflict between two good women who began to cool in their devotion and began to heat up their anger became a threat to the ministry of this whole church. And the sad thing is they probably both thought that they were right. One quarrel between two church members can spread like a contagious disease. And we must guard against any threat to unity if we, if we plan to honor God. That's just the way it has to be done. And this is true in every single church. I have never known of a church that, was in the, that had existed for more than two weeks that had not had to deal with something like this. 
It happens all the time. If you think that the devil is not real, just sit back and watch what he can do if we take our eyes off the Lord. And it will happen all the time. And therefore, we must always have it in our mind that we are going to strive together to please God in whatever we do. You know, uh, well, another thing that we see in this passage is there's the need to confront the issue of this disunity. The things that we see in the case of Euodia and Syntyche usually don't go away on their own. It's not one of those things that you can just ignore it and say, well, you know, it'll get better. Well, it usually doesn't. And usually someone or some group has to step in. We don't know. Paul called upon his true yoke fellow to step in. We have no clue as to who this yoke fellow was. We really don't know. But it doesn't really make any difference. He called upon him to do something. You need to step in. Bring these two gals together. You know, they just kind of got their, got twisted off about something. And they need to come in and step in and be the ones that deal with this issue. And notice how you have to do it. Anytime you address an issue like disunity and you do deal with it, remember something. Gentleness has to be the guiding principle. You know, not wrath. You don't go in there and say, well, I'll straighten them out like a crooked nail. That's not the way it works. You know, notice how he deals with it. If you have a King James Version, he, he addresses this true yoke fella. He said, you know, or no, not, not the true yoke fella. He, he entreats Euodia and Syntyche. Or if you have a King James Version, he says, I, I beseech Euodia and Syntyche. If you have a New International Version, he says, I plead with them. Possibly, we might even translate it a little bit better, I like it this way, where he says, I gently urge. Because this is a gentle word that he uses. There's a verb form of it that is often translated as comfort. <laughs> you know, remember what's written in Proverbs chapter 15, verse 1. A soft answer turneth away wrath. That was true in Solomon's day, and it still is. And by the way, if you have a hard time giving soft answers, you might want to practice on that. I don't know that you do, but that's just the way you're supposed to do that. Here's another thing, and the guy that I was talking about that said I'll, we'll discuss something over a cup of coffee, he put together three ideas on the call for unity. He said, one of them is this, we must never be more concerned about our pride than unity. And sometimes in church we can get our pride hurt, can't we? I mean, it's happened to me before. You know, I know one time at first church where I served, I had the greatest idea in the world. I mean, it was just brilliant. And I brought it up. And the deacons shot it down in flames. And I think they smiled when they did it. <laughs> and, I, and I really wasn't a very happy camper about that. But, you know, I was really more concerned about my pride. Sometimes our pride gets hurt. And let me tell you something. Our pride is worth nothing compared to the unity of the saints. We must never be more concerned about our power than our unity. You know, 
Sometimes we just like to be the one that's in control of things. Another time at another church, well, no, it was the same church. <laughs> the church was discussing getting a new parsonage. This was like in about 1985 in the church. The parsonage had been there since about at least 1890. And it was old. It was kind of a neat old house, and we kind of liked it, but the church said, We're, we want to get something different, and we want the pastor to live somewhere else. I didn't ask them to do that. I didn't care whether they did it or not. So it was being discussed in a business meeting, and the head deacon didn't like it. And things were not going the head deacon's way. And he said something that, I think kind of slipped out of his mouth. He said, well, if we get that, he'll have a house that's as nice as mine. Uh -oh. <laughs> the church did not follow what he wanted to do. And when the church voted, only he and his wife voted against it. Now, there was another guy that voted against it, but after the church, you know, the majority went along with it, he said, okay, I'll go along with the majority. He didn't care. You know, that's just the way he was. You know, the thing was, was that one man got upset simply because we didn't recognize his power and prestige, and he realized it was nothing. The only power that we need to worry about or be concerned about is the power of the Holy Spirit. Your power, your authority, your prestige means nothing. It's all about God. I mean, he's the only one that we praise. We have to keep that in mind. And we have to focus on the priority of unity. You know, because whenever we don't focus on that, all our other pursuits are worthless pursuits. You know, it's just like Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. Is Christ divided? No, he isn't. And therefore, what we have to do is we have to focus on this is because we want to be united for Christ. It's a united we stand type thing for Christ. And, you know, if we're not united, we can have all the prayer meetings that we want. And we'll be wasting our time. Years ago, uh, it's just like in the mid-80s, <clears throat> again, uh, I was preaching a revival meeting in a rural church, uh, or fairly rural church uh, in central Texas. And... Uh, I, I preached, you know, on Sunday morning and then for I've forgotten how many nights in a row after that. And I felt like I might as well have been preaching to a statue. I mean, really. And, and I couldn't figure it out. I just thought, well, it's just me, you know, and they don't like me or they don't really care to listen or anything like that. You know, it was just that it was one of those things that whenever you said amen at the end of the sermon, you were glad because you wanted to get out of there. I mean, I just felt like I was struggling the whole time I was there. The guy that was leading the singing, uh, you know, he, they called him in from another church, and he led the singing. And he and I had known each other for several years, and we were real good friends, but we never said anything to each other about it, you know, because I really thought it was all my fault. I didn't know why, but I just thought it was just me that they didn't relate to me too well. Several months later, I got a call from another pastor. He said, well, I was talking to so-and-so. He was the one that led the scene. He said, boy, that, he said, he, he told me that he struggled the whole time that he was there and leading the singing. And he said, he, he said, you know, that church was divided. 
oh, they were still coming together, but they couldn't get along with each other. There was one group that made up one faction, another group made up another faction. And they said, oh, before the revival meeting, they had cottage prayer meetings, but not together. One group met at one house, and then another one met at another house, and they couldn't even get along with each other. And they should have all just stayed home and watched reruns of Leave It to Beaver as far as doing anything beneficial and glorifying to God. Is Christ divided? No, he never has been, and he never will be. And what we need to do is we make this thing about unity a priority. As I said, I'm not picking on you, all right? I'm just saying that this is a thing that every church needs. We're just going through Philippians and we happen to come to this. But don't ever forget these two little verses. We have to be united before our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's, let's pray together, please. Now, our Lord... We confess to you that there have been times that we've gotten sidetracked. And we begin to think about more about our own ideas and our own power and prestige than we have been thinking about your glory. Lord, we don't want to do that. I know that we've all done it sometime, at one time or another, but we don't want to do that. Lord, I pray that you would cause us to have a hunger to be unified and a hunger to see your glory at work among us. Oh, Lord, may your name be praised here at this place. And we pray this not just for this church, but for all of your churches in this area. May your name be praised. Oh, Lord, you are so good to us and so patient with us. We can't praise you enough. Thank you, Lord, for letting us come together today and to praise you and to worship you and to fellowship with each other. And Lord, I thank you for the sweet spirit that we can enjoy today. And I pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.